chairs out if you have one. If you don't, there is a stack right by the giant gumball machine. You know, the giant gumball machine. Um, buy a gumball while you're at it. It's really, they're tasty. Um, okay, we are in the book of Acts. I, I almost, I say this, I almost say this every time. I almost call it the gospel of Acts, which is actually not sacrilegious um, because there is a lot of good news in this book. And that's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. And this book actually is full of good news because this book is the second part of a story that was started in the gospel of Luke. So really the book is the same author and it's like Luke told all about Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, the disciples, how Jesus was betrayed and how Jesus died and then how Jesus rose from the dead. And then the story of the book of Acts is what Jesus did after Jesus rose, which was to tell the disciples who were left and to empower them, to charge them with a mission to carry out Christ's, what had, Christ had begun in his life, to carry that out throughout the entire world. And so the story of Acts is the story of the early church, yes, but the main character, and I say this every time because it's so important not to forget it, the main character is still Jesus Christ. That is who this book is about, because this is, that is the name in which the early church does everything. Everything they do is done in the name of Jesus. That's what gives the church, ultimately, that's what gives the apostles, the church, authority and power to do what they do, to do signs and wonders, to teach, to preach the good news, to forgive sins, etc., etc., because they're doing it in the name of Christ. And so Christ is center to this. So in a lot of ways, this is good news. It, is, it can be the gospel of Acts. I mean, maybe don't you know write my bishop about it or anything, but... Um, it's the Gospel of Acts. Okay, so we are in this book. It was written a few generations after Christ. It was written to people who were trying to, who were being a part of this early church, but they didn't maybe know exactly what that meant. And so this is like, hey, remember where we came from. Remember who we are. Remember what it means to be a part of this church. And so just to give you kind of a few background um, information so that you can kind of catch up to where we are in the gospel, in the book. Okay, I'm going to do that all the time. Um, Basically, we're going to pick up at Acts 15, verse 22. So that's Acts chapter 15, verse 22. That's where we're going to pick up today. And up till this point, Jesus has, um, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus said, okay, apostles, you go out into the world and carry my mission of forgiveness of sins with you wherever you go. That's such good news. You got to tell everybody. So they start preaching it and people start listening and people start joining up. Now, remember, the interesting thing is, you cannot be a mem- you cannot believe in Jesus and not be a member be a part of this new community that we know as the church. It doesn't make sense. There's no such thing as someone who like believes and has faith but like doesn't want to be a part of organized religion. That just doesn't work here. And so to be a believer in Christ, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, you had to be a part of this community. Those two things went hand in hand. That's what it meant. So all of a sudden people are joining up. They're not just fo- they're not just believing in Christ individually, they're joining up this community. So this community starts to grow, and they start to kind of need some organization. And so they start, like, appointing people to help organize and feed the widows over here, and you got to take care of the orphans. you got to make sure that all the goods that people are donating to the church get used the right way and divided properly. And so they start having to get structure. Now, as the movement grew, it attracted 
a lot of attention. Some of it was really good. People heard the good news and they got excited and so they joined in. And some people saw what was happening and they were really threatened by it. And in fact, they weren't just threatened personally. That's really important to note. The Jews in particular, the people who actually looked around and saw other Jews following this guy named Christ, there were Jews who kind of said, okay, they're being blasphemous. They're being bad Jews for doing that because this guy named Christ is not the Savior that God has promised us. So the Christians were people, were Jews. The first Christians were Jews. Jesus was Jewish, just Jesus was Jewish, okay? And the first Christians were Jews, and they were people who thought, you know what? This guy named Christ, he is the one who God has promised from so long ago. God is faithful. God made a promise of of a Savior to come, and this guy named Jesus is that person. So those Jews are the first Christians, the first people to follow Christ. Now, there are a bunch of other Jews, as we maybe remember, the ones who didn't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God, who really didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior that God had promised. Those are the ones who killed Jesus, a lot of them. And those are also the people who started persecuting the early church. And they were doing it because they thought that the early church was blasphemous. They were totally threatening their, the, what it meant to be Jewish and the whole history of their people and their, their covenant with God and, and the faithfulness that they were supposed to live out, their relationship with God. And so there was a lot of tension, and the Jews began to persecute the Jews who were followers of Christ. And so we have the first martyrs, and we have a lot of instances where the apostles be, are put in jail. But then we also hear how the Holy Spirit comes and leads them out of jail. We have a lot of those kind of stories, so we realize that there's tension there. Now, that doesn't necessarily go away, because, and it's going to kind of come back up repeatedly throughout. But another area in which the early church faced a lot of tension was within itself, because there's only so many Jews that they could talk to about Christ before they really had to start telling other people about Christ, if they were going to continue that message, that mission. And so all of a sudden, you have people like Peter, who are going into Gentile, which just means non-Jewish areas, and preaching the good news. And they were maybe a little resistant at first, but led by the Spirit, led by God's vision and God's will, they would go into these areas and preach to Gentiles and tell them the good news, The Holy Spirit would come upon the Gentiles. They would baptize the Gentiles then into the faith. So now you have this community. Remember, you can't just have faith and not be part of the community. So you have this community that's made up of Jewish Christians. And now all of a sudden, these Gentile Christians are entering into the community. And we hear the story of Paul and his dramatic transformation into a believer of Christ and how he continues to go into the Gentile areas, preaching not only to the Jews in those areas, but also to Gentiles, Greeks and Romans who are there, who are hearing the good news and wanting to be involved. It's changing their lives, so they're all of a sudden becoming a part of the community. This is happening over and over and over. And let me just tell you, that's causing some tension. And it all came to head last week when we talked about the council at Jerusalem. So that's at the beginning of chapter 15, if you ever get a chance to, to read back over that. Because the big issue, the big issue now, is how do we all be Christians when there are a lot of cultural, not only kind of religious, but cultural differences between us? What we're allowed to eat, what we're allowed to touch, what we're allowed to wear. And there's a big issue you know, the one of circumcision. So I was like, how can I say this? Just circumcision. Okay. So because the Jews believed 
that to be a part of God's chosen people, to be a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Period. Sorry, it's weird, I know, but that's what it was. And so if you were not circumcised, you could not, you were not part of that covenant people. They saw those two things as very important. And so all of a sudden, and remember that those Jews believed that Jesus was not something totally different. Jesus was the fulfillment of promises that God had made to their people generations and generations and generations ago. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to those covenant people, to God's chosen people. Okay, so now you have these Gentiles are coming into the group. And they have not been circumcised, okay? So they are not part of the covenant people. And you have the Jews, and they're saying, okay, in order to really be a part of this community, a part of this covenant people, which really you are if you believe in Jesus, because that's what Jesus is doing. Do you get, you get what I'm saying? You got to be circumcised so that you're part of the covenant people. And then the Gentiles are like, whoa, whoa, you know, as you can imagine, the Gentiles, probably especially the men, are like, uh, heck no, why don't we just believe in faith, you know, know that Jesus Christ gave us the Holy Spirit and we're going to be saved and that's awesome. And so there's this tension. And we have the disciples and, and different people going to Jerusalem and they go to the church there. And we, we recognize that there's this kind of apostolic authority that really is centered in Jerusalem. And so they kind of go from this church called Antioch, Paul and Barnabas in particular, go as representatives of kind of the Gentile churches that they have planted in their missions and their travels. And they go to Jerusalem and they say, okay, we got to figure this out. And so they debate for a really long time, and they go back and forth. And you got a lot of the Jews who are saying, look, this is what it means to be a Christian, is to be a part of this covenant people, and you have to be circumcised in order to do that. And you got Peter then who stands up and says, I'm sorry, but just like it happened with us, we are all going to be saved by the grace of Lord Jesus Christ. It is not about circumcision. It is totally about what Jesus has done for us, and that's given us grace, and that's why we're saved. So it's this discussion about what it means to, to be um, a part of the saved people, to have salvation. Do you need to be circumcised in order to be saved? There are other issues that kind of crept up because there's something like 614 different laws that the Jewish people that were in the Mosaic law, like the laws of Moses that we have in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus and all these places. And they were expecting truly that Christians kind of partake in all those laws, follow all those laws. And so they kind of reached this conclusion and this overarching conclusion that there were only going to need to be four rules that the new Christians, the Gentiles, needed to follow. And they kind of established that. And then they said, okay, now we got to communicate that with them. So they kind of decided that they would not need to follow all those laws. They would only need to focus on four. And then they were like, all right, let's communicate with that. So we are picking up right after they've made their decision, right as they're about to figure out the way, the best way to communicate that with all the Gentile churches. So that's chapter 15, verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. It's like aliens. Greetings. 
Okay. Since we have heard that certain persons whom have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to uh, disturb you and have unsettled your minds. Yeah, if you heard you had to be circumcised and you're like 25, that would disturb you. We have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake, excuse me, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Very short and sweet and to the point. Um, so what is so important to recognize here is they, send, they make this decision, and they send this letter out, and they, they kind of select a group of, um, of people. And I love that they make this decision with the consent of the whole church. I mean, in actuality, it's really only the Christians in Jerusalem who have gotten together and talked about this. You know, I mean, they're the ones who figured all this out. But the idea is, and what Luke, the author of this, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, stresses so much throughout this whole scene, and we're going to see it a lot, is that the church is one. No matter how far spread it is, it is all one, under one authority, kind of one body. And remember, it's because Jesus gave authority, to, well, God gave authority to Jesus, okay? God is Jesus. God, Jesus has authority of God. Then Jesus gave authority to the apostles, those 11 and then plus one, an extra guy who they added on, tacked on at the beginning. And then those apostles own that authority and they spread that authority to select individuals who are prophets and who are teachers and who go out and, and lead the, the local churches in areas where maybe the apostles can't always be. So the apostles are definitely centered in Jerusalem and that's definitely the center of authority at the church. And the important thing to realize is that nothing is ha- happening individually. Like nothing is happening based on just some one person's crazy ideas of what should happen. This is like a, a consensual, official, you know, entire church kind of organization now. And everything that comes, comes from the entire church. So they represent and also instruct now the entire church. And that's really important to, to note here because that is, that's a connection that is made over and over and over again. Nothing that, these, that any of the, the true people do, well, I'll just say this, if they are real people, not real, if they are you know, true, have real authority, that's what I mean. If they have real authority, then they are going to be connected to the church in Jerusalem, okay? That is kind of what's going on here. So that's real important to note. So then we have... Um, Paul and Barnabas, remember, they were the ones that the church at Antioch sent to Jerusalem to try to work out what what was going to be done about this. And so then they officially send these two other guys, Judas, called Barsabbas. Everybody's like, has an AKA in in Acts. It's crazy. Um, And we we don't know anything else about him. This is like his only part in the story. And then Silas. And Silas actually becomes really important because he goes on Paul on his second missionary journey later. Um, But they choose those two guys. And they go and they deliver this letter. Now, you know, they made it really clear that the people who started talking about circumcision and like all that stuff, they were not 
connected to the central church. Do you notice that? They are saying, you know, certain persons, they're gone out and no instruction for us. So those are not connected. They've disturbed you. And we unanimously, you remember there was much debate about this. I mean, like some pretty like staunch people on, all, on either side. And in this letter, we have this idea then that they actually did reach a consensus, that there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of discussion, but they kind of came to a consensus. And so they are, we unanimously decided to send you with these people, the beloved people, and they're going to go and tell you, you know, all the information that we, what we have decided. And so there is this sense, if you read this letter, that there's kind of goodwill. Like there's not a lot of, you know, there was a lot of tension, a lot of debate going into Jerusalem, but coming out of Jerusalem, you know, Paul and Barnabas are beloved. You know, they're, they're my homies. They're, we're good. Like the Gentile church, the Jewish church, we're like one, y'all. It's going to be awesome. So there's a lot of goodwill in this letter. Um, and a reminder and kind of a, a, a reminder that we are all in this together. So notice here what they say. I love here what they say in verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I mean, this is what, this is, what is driving the church and driving the decisions that the church makes. Now, the interesting thing is if you read back to the discussion, no mention really of the Holy Spirit is made. I mean, there, there is very little mention. What is mentioned is the fact that they look back and they look at the tradition. Well, what's the Moses tradition? And they read scriptures and the scriptures for them, remember, were the Old Testament. And they read the scriptures and they said, well, how do we, you know, understand what's happening now, this issue in light of the scriptures that we have? And then they, they talked about um, their experiences. You know, Peter talked about experiences that he had and witnessing, you know, what has happened when he converted Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas talked about their experiences in in ministering to the Gentile communities that they encountered. And so they have this experience and they debate. There's much debate, kind of rational dialogue back and forth and, and people are quiet and they listen and there's discussion. It's really interesting then to think, where is the Holy Spirit in that? But if you think about it, and this is definitely true throughout, the Holy Spirit is what's driving everything that the church does. So it's not like the Holy Spirit decided some things, and then we decided something separately over here, and they just happened to agree. No, it's like the Holy Spirit and us, the Holy Spirit working through us, drove us to this decision. So, but it's interesting because there is the need for human discussion and human discernment, if you will. I mean, the church needed to debate and needed to discern and needed to talk about and needed to read scripture and read and listen to tradition and look at the experiences of the apostles and what they had had. They needed to do those things in order to come to this conclusion. You know, what they're doing really is theology. They have faith, but they're seeking understanding. And that is a very common definition of what it means to do theology. Faith, seeking understanding. And that's what we have here. You know, from in a church, an official church council, they have faith in God. They're just trying to understand what God's really telling them what to do. You know, God, we want to follow you, but where are you going? You got to point us in the right direction. And they need to take time to discern that. Guys, I think this is so true for us today. When we're, when we're stuck in like a place where it's like, what does God want us to do? Gosh, I cannot tell you how many times I have asked that question. How many times I've talked to you guys and you have come and said, what does God want me to do? There is a sense we can be guided and reminded that God is working through us. 
that the Holy Spirit is present in us. But we have got to take time to discern, to look at tradition, to read scripture, to think about experiences that maybe we have had or others have had with God, and to debate and to talk to people who we trust and who we know are faithful people who are trying to understand it. It is okay not to know for sure. It's okay to have to talk about it. They do this here. We, have to, we can't be afraid of it. I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit of a risk. They're kind of taking a risk. They're trying to figure out what God wants them to do. They're going to go out on a limb here and say, nobody has to be circumcised. But they're doing that because they believe that the Holy Spirit is part of that process from the very beginning. And we have to believe that too. I, I think we have got to believe that too. So hopefully that's somewhat encouraging. So the Holy Spirit and them impose on you no further things than these essentials. So like all 614 laws, they boil down to four things. Don't eat things that are given to idols. So um, that's usually meat that has been sacrificed for an idol. So don't eat meat that's been sacrificed for an idol. Um, don't eat, eat meat, anything cooked in blood which is, I don't even know what that would be. That's just gross. Don't eat that. Don't eat things that are strangled, which is non-kosher. So kosher is like they slit the throat and all the blood drains out and then you can eat the meat because it's good. It's not like covered in blood. But when you strangle things, the blood like stays inside and it like contaminates the meat or something. I don't know. Basically, they have this thing about, about blood. Um, and then from fornication, we talked last time about really in the context of this, fornication is not just random sexual impurity. It probably um, is much more specific in talking about incest in particular. So no idols, no blood, no blood, no incest. If you can just do that, then you're good. And we're going to like welcome you with arms wide open. Hey, arms open wide, what we just saying. So that's what they're going to welcome them with. But here's what's key. Those four things, they're not really necessary for salvation, Okay. These are, they're not, the church is not saying, well, you cannot be saved by Christ unless you do these four things. The, uh, hey, it's only four. You know, that's much better than 614. But those are not necessary for salvation. Those are necessary for unity. So those four things are what they have determined is necessary for the, you know, Jew Christians and the Gentile Christians to live together in unity. So this, these, remember, are not issues of salvation, they're issues of unity. And how is the church supposed to be one body when we come from all these crazy places, we have all these different practices, we have all these different things that we think are important? Look, if we can just, like, agree on these four things, we're good. And we can just keep praising Jesus and keep spreading the good news. And that's what our job is anyway. So that's really important to note here. So verse 40, 30. <laughs> well, I don't know what I said. So they were sent off. And they went down to Antioch with that letter, and they gathered the congregation together, and they delivered it. And when its members read it and heard it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Now, after they had been there for some time, they were sent off in peace by the believers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, and there, with many others, they taught and proclaimed the word of the Lord. Does anybody's Bible have verse 34 in it? Anybody notice that's kind of weird? It goes from 33 to 35. This kind of happens because when the King James Bible was um, translated, they used 
They did that translation from certain manuscripts. And then as time has gone on and um, our kind of ability and, and, and research has been better, we have found older manuscripts that therefore are considered more reliable and more accurate that have different, that don't contain some verses that were there when the King James Bible was translated. So they can't like rearrange all the verse numbers and so they just, like drop some of the verses here and there. So we've seen that before when we've done this, but here's an example. Um, The verse that was dropped is, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And the reason is something that's about to come up. But that's, um, the reason that that was there, the, the scholars believe, was because it made sense to explain an event that's about to happen. But in the oldest manuscripts, it is not included in the text. So that's kind of what our modern translations go with. Um, again, important, you know, the Antioch church, they rejoice when they hear this letter because they're not independents. They wait, they're, you know, they're, they're active. They're still, the Gentiles are still members, but they're not, they're excited when they hear that they're connected still to Jerusalem, when they hear that exhortation because they're not an independent church. Um, prophets were inspired spokespeople for Christ, for the risen Christ. I mean, they were inspired excuse me, inspired literally, you know, inspirited by, by the Holy Spirit to, to be spokespersons for Christ. And so that's um, who Judas and Silas were. And there was a lot of encouragement, a lot of encouraging encouragement going on. Um, okay, so let's continue to uh, verse 36. So after some days of hanging out in Antioch and, you know, having a good time with the, with the brothers, um, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, Let's return and visit the believers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Well, Barnabas was like, yeah, I want to take John called Mark, a.k.a. Mark. But Paul decided not to take with them Paul, uh, John, a.k.a. Mark, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and he had not accompanied them in their work. And so they disagreed and the disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. And so Barnabas took John, a.k.a. Mark, with him and sailed away to Cyprus, his home. But Paul chose Silas and set out, the believers commending him to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So do you see why now some people, you know, why maybe that verse 34 had been included because you know, Paul chose a Silas and they go and they go to the churches. But if Silas didn't remain there, if he had gone back to Jerusalem, then how did they get Silas? So, you know, there's, so they, I mean, the scholars, not to be like cavalier about this, but the scholars are kind of like probably some Christian like translator or writer, like just slip this in there just to make more sense. I mean, you know, it's kind of like this can help make the story flow a little bit better. But like I said, in the oldest manuscripts, it's not there, but that's why they think that it was added in. Um, so we have this like really crazy moment where like Paul and Barnabas you know, these like two guys who've gone everywhere and like traveled to all these places and started all these churches and like, you know, everywhere you read their names is like Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, and they're like a unit. And all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, there's this intense like disagreement that they have. Kind of like makes you uncomfortable because you're like, what's going on here? And why are they being such jerks to each other? And, you know, I thought they were friends. And, you know, I mean, those people that you're like, whoa, they are not friends anymore? Like, they had a fight? I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. It's, like, shocking. If you were hearing this, it's shocking that Paul and Barnabas had this disagreement. And it seems like such a minor thing, too, if you think about it. Um, 
But it's, it's kind of neat, you know. Paul says, all right, let's go visit these people because these are all the churches we've started. Let's go visit them. Let's check up on them. Let's make sure they're okay. Let's see how they're doing. And that word visit, that word visit is related to the words that we use for bishop and supervisor. And so there is this sense that what Paul is suggesting is kind of a supervisory role. That Paul's like, let's go, you know, check in, make sure everything's going okay. And so Paul kind of takes his initiative, takes this leadership to do that. And, uh, you know, at first Barnabas is like, yeah, well, let's take, you know, John, my brother called Mark. And, uh, it's going to be so awesome. Remember, like Peter went to his mom's house after he got out of prison and like he came with us to some of the cities and, you know, yeah, he might have left us. He had like, I don't know, something calling him at home, but let's just take him with us. And Paul's like, no, no way, man, that dude deserted us. He just left. And we're not t- he didn't even do it. He didn't even do the work that we did. Why would we take him with us? He is not, you know, he's not good with us. He's not a, he doesn't get to be a supervisor of these churches. He didn't even start them. And I hate that. The disagreement was so sharp, word sharp, you know, that they totally had to separate. They totally went separate ways. And you know, it's interesting. The Spirit is still is leading them, right? So how can they have this disagreement if they're being led by the Holy Spirit? Does that nullify, like, the work that the Spirit's done through them in the past? I mean, I think you can kind of, these are questions that maybe come up when you read this. And I think we have asked those questions in today when we see like a pastor or a church that like falls apart or like a pastor that makes mistakes or like, gosh, that doesn't seem very holy of them. Does that nullify? Is the Holy Spirit not with them? But that, that's not a part of this at all. I mean, the Holy Spirit was clearly still a part of their ministry and, and will clearly still be a part of their ministry, specifically Paul's, because that's who we follow for the rest of Acts. And so you can see that even though people are doing what they're called to do, even though they're following the Spirit, we're still people, right? Still going to make mistakes. We're still going to get in disagreements. We're still going to see things the wrong way. And we don't have any idea why Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark, and we have no idea why Paul really didn't want to take him. Seems like such a minor issue. But they may have that disagreement, and they parted ways. And yet, the Spirit is still present. And so, like I said, Barnabas goes back to his home, Cyprus, presumably still to do ministry, hopefully. And Paul takes Silas, and he starts on what is known as his second missionary journey. And for the rest of the book of Acts, we follow Paul. Where he goes, he goes all the way through 18, and then it's his um, his encounters with folks with folks beyond and back in Jerusalem and all sorts of things. Um, but remember, I, even here, the believers commend Paul to the grace of the Lord. You know, so he's not going, again, he hasn't gone rogue. He hasn't gone like off on his own, crazy, just going to do his own thing. He's still part of this whole process. The Holy Spirit is still active. He's still connected to the church. So he's just going to minister with someone else now. It's really interesting, I think, when you read these kind of stories and you look about around us and we see the world and we see the church and how it's functioning or maybe not functioning today. It's interesting to think if there's a connection here, if there's something we can learn. I mean, what I hope that you guys take from this tonight is that to be a part of the church means to be connected, no matter where you are, to a community of believers. 
and to, to recognize really what the foundational issue is. You know, the essential issue for salvation is the grace of Jesus Christ. And yet there are ways that maybe we can live together that can promote unity in a better, a better way, you know? We have so many different churches that say so many different things, but we're all saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And there, are there any things that we can do to take down a stumbling block that maybe would prevent somebody else from being a part of that? You know? So I, I just would encourage you um, to think about what, what do you do, maybe, that's a stumbling block for somebody else to hear the good news of Christ? What do you do that maybe would prevent somebody from wanting to hear the good news of Christ? I mean, I think people do this one way or the other. So I encourage you to, encourage you to think about that, to pray about that, and then to come back next week. We're going to talk about this even more. In fact, it's crazy, because next week we're going to talk about how Paul actually does circumcise someone, which is like totally nuts, because he just argued against it. You'll have to come back next week to see. All right. Um, yeah, I know. Can't wait. Circumcision. Woo! Um, all the guys are like, no, thank you. But, um, okay, y'all have a great week. I think we're going to head out to dinner.